there was a point in time, no joke, where you could have Googled the word failure. That's it, just the word failure. And there's a good chance that my face would have been one of your top search results. What had happened is I, I had started two companies that had both failed. And I was part of another company that you might be familiar with called Groupon, which was very successful for a short period of time. You know, Forbes magazine called Groupon the fastest growing company of all time. And then a lot of that sort of just kind of crash and burn. One of the echoes of Kintsugi in today's halls of science is really around this idea of post-traumatic growth, right? which is different than resilience. I spend most of my time with people who are leading organizations, and they are as burnt out as people who are entering the workforce for the first time. 40% of C-suite executives are considering leaving their job over the next year due to workplace stress, cutting their career short. They had a vision for the way that they wanted their career to end, they're thinking about pulling the plug before that ever happens because they can't handle the stress anymore. This episode of the Kintsugi Podcast is brought to you by Pause, Breathe, Reflect, which can help you bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. Hey there, it's Michael. Welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast and another story of connection. This week, we have a special story of connecting with our center, connecting with home. When I was in the hospital recovering from my last bad day, all I wanted was to find a way to come back home. One definition of mindfulness is to remember. Remember to come back. Come back to your breath. Come back home. Come back to your center. This week's guest is another like-hearted human. He was once known as the face of failure, but he's so much more than that. He's a husband, a dad, a good friend, a brother, an innovator, and a storyteller, sharing stories from his ancestors to help him navigate this thing that we call life. And he's also someone who's generous in sharing his story of connection to help us all do the same. So if you're ready, settle in, take a healthy breath in, and a slow releasing breath out, and connect with this week's guest, Sunil Gupta. Sunil, great to see you, brother. Michael. I'm so happy for this. This is going to be great. Oh, it's so good to be here. All right. I always love starting a conversation off with this question. What is one good thing that's happened for you before this very moment? 
Oh, I love that question. And so rarely get asked that, though I do try to ask my kids this question now, just kind of like, what's what's one good thing that happened? I just got back from Thanksgiving holidays, and I would say that one good thing that really happened was that my older daughter, Sammy, who's 11 years old, would come to me periodically while we were completely surrounded by family and say, hey, I'm feeling a little like overwhelmed right now or I'm feeling this weirdness like this she said this thing to me like you know and, and like I'm picking up a, a little bit of passive aggressiveness and stuff like that so I almost feel like with my daughter for the very first time we got strategic together during the holidays of how do we engage with family and love them and be with them but at the same time control some boundaries around us and it was fun to do that with my kid that is awesome she's breathing in what daddy is sharing it's pretty cool like like listen to your body listen to what's called for now, right? Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think so. And I've also just kind of, I don't know about you, man. I mean, your kids are a little older than mine. I have an 11-year-old and a seven-year-old. And I swear I spent the first few years of her life, anytime she would come to me with a problem, trying to solve it. And now I kind of realize like, you know, maybe the obvious, which is that she never really wanted me to solve it. She just wants me to listen to her. And she wants me to validate that she is actually going through something that is painful. And I think also the special connections lately have come from these moments where it's like, hey, you know, this is the kind of thing that you're always going to feel. I feel it right now myself. You know, it, it's not, you don't feel it because you're a kid or because you're immature. You feel it because you're human. I so resonate with what you just said. I too, like when our girls were young, I thought, okay, well, they're just little kids dad has the answer. So I would like to solve the problem, right? A little bit of the egos involved in that. And then almost at where your kids are at, I realized that I had to ask better questions. That was my role. And now they're 23 and will be next week, 26. Now I just create space and I just say, Hey, you know what? If the moment really sucks, I'm like, it sucks. And just create the space without any questions, without any solutions, and just let them be in it. Because I know now, over the years, that if they do have a question for dear old dad, they'll ask the question, as opposed to me offering up a question or offering up a solution. So Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you're going through the natural phases of parenting. And, uh, you know, it's each moment is special in its own way. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, I'm feeling that too. Very cool. So we're going to get into your book, Everyday Dharma, which is fantastic, I will add. So we're going to get into it. But for those that don't know you, if you can put your job off to the side, how would you describe who you are? I'm somebody who is just really passionate about like what do we do internally in order to succeed externally? And I got into this because I watched my dad really struggle with his health. You know, he was in his 40s, which is not much older than I am right now. He was in his mid 40s. I'm in my early 40s. And, um, you know, he dropped me off at school one day, said, I'm going to pick you up right here by the flagpole. I left school, bell rang, went to the flagpole. He wasn't there. He was already being rushed at that point to an operating room. He had gone in for like a very basic checkup and they checked his heart and they were like, this is not good. You are like on the brink of having a heart attack. And they caught it, luckily, just in time, open heart surgery, completely unplanned. And he survived, though we nearly lost him that day. He survived. And what I saw over the next sort of 10 years was a man who 
had to figure out his life, like basically had to figure out his own habits, not in order to just add like days to his life, but to add life to his days. Yeah. How does he, how does he become human again? How does he, how does he start to be a parent again? And I was very inspired by that. And especially because he had the help of a health coach who helped him build those habits. Um, so later on in my life, I kind of dedicated myself to how do we figure that out for other people? Yeah. How do we help other people get that kind of care? And that really led to me going down a path where I studied exceptional people who were reaching the top of their game. But whenever we talked about them in the public eye, we would talk about sort of their communication style, or we would talk about sort of their, their strategies or decision making. I wanted to go behind the scenes and understand like, how do they eat? How do they sleep? How do they exercise? You know, what do they do when they were with their families? And how do they build energy throughout the day? Then that was just far more interesting to me. But as it turns out, it was far more interesting to them as well. Like I think it was, it was really those internal habits that really make us shine. Um, so that's kind of been the story of my life now. I get fascinated by anybody. I believe everybody is my teacher. And if you're in a conversation with me at a cocktail party, I'm going to almost in an awkward way go straight to like, tell me about your routine. Tell me about like what your mornings look like. How do you sleep and all that kind of stuff. I love that. The beautiful questions that you're asking. Going back to like what we were just talking about with kids, right? So talking about these elements with other people. So ultimately, the show is about connection. So one thing I love to ask, because this is a thing for my wife and for me, is that we love to hear couples origin stories. <laughs> so how did you meet your wife? Yeah. So it's a really dorky story. My wife and I met in graduate school. I was in law school. I did a joint law school business school program at Northwestern. And uh, Lena, my wife, was a journalism major at Northwestern. And uh, she was doing a one-year program there. And we met in basically both of our final few months of our respective programs. And the way that we met was we had both earned a scholarship and this scholarship committee threw a little reception and they invited the people who received the scholarship to come to. The, and the twist on the story is that, you know, I had a friend who sounds a lot like you, the way you describe sort of your relationship with your wife and that like we were both in class one day and I told her about this reception and it was happening at another campus. We were in downtown Chicago and it was happening in Evanston. And I told her I was probably not going to go to the reception. And she looks at me and she's like, what do you what do you mean you're not going to go? And I said, well, you know, it's just a silly kind of reception. You know, it's like, it's like you're going to go get this little prize and like, who needs that and that type of thing. And she's like, this reception is not for you. It's for them. This has nothing to do with you. It's you going and saying thank you to the people who are giving you money for your education. You know, you jerk. And, and, <laughs> and so she, like, I didn't have a car at this point in time. I was going to take the bus. And she's like, she is like, I have a car. I'm going to drive you to this damn reception. And so she does. Like, you know, and I begrudgingly I go because I had this like, you know, weird ego as somebody who didn't want to like, you know, be kind to others and say thank you to others. I show up at this thing and lo and behold, there at the reception is Lena, who I meet for the first time, fall in love immediately. I call a buddy of mine on my way home. I took the bus home. <laughs> she didn't offer me a ride back. I took the bus home and I called a buddy of mine and I said, hey, I think I met the girl that I'm going to marry tonight. Wow, that is awesome, man. Oh, I love that story. Serendipity, right? 
Totally. And, and if not for my friend who called me out on being such a jerk, it, I don't think it ever would have happened. We need friends like that. You know, when you think about community, which you write about in your book, and we'll get into your book next, we need people in our lives that help us clarify things when it gets cloudy, but also push us outside of our comfort zone. Like when we're being a jerk, <laughs> we need someone in our lives to say, you know what, right now you're being a jerk. Totally. And I still love you, but be less jerky. Like go to the <laughs> go to the reception. You never know who you might meet, right? So, and here you are. How long have you been married? We we're gonna hit 15 years next year. Ah, bravo. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, let's get into everyday Dharma. I'd love to double click on the word Dharma for those that may not be familiar with. So we'll ground there and then love to talk through some of the stuff that led to the book, and then we'll get into different elements of the book, including a little section on Kintsugi, which I just loved. One thing I also loved about the book is that you have all these little gems, these little stories, almost like micro mindfulness moments that I would love for you to share, but we'll get into that in a bit. Let's start here. Let's double click on the word Dharma. What is it for those that may not know? Yeah. You know, Dharma is your sacred duty. It is a duty to the fire that is burning inside of you. And every single one of us has that fire. You know, is this is something that really wants to express itself to the outside world, right? And if you were sort of getting one layer deeper than that, this Dharma is really a representation of who you are. Right? And I think the the practice of Dharma is really about alignment. It's alignment between what you do and who you are. And we'll get into that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that only happens through, you know, your job title. It happens through the way that you live. You asked how I got into this concept of Dharma. And, you know, I, I learned about Dharma when I was very young. Uh, we took our first trip to India. I grew up outside of Detroit, but we would take frequent trips to India. And I took my first one that I could remember when I was about seven years old. And my grandfather was this just really, like, amazing figure, almost storied, mythical in our in our family. He fought for India's independence, marched with Mahatma Gandhi. And we, you know, would spend a lot of time, just the two of us, sitting on his front porch in New Delhi. And then this one day he points to an Indian flag that's waving in the distance. And he says, hey, do you see the center of that flag? And I look at it and there's a wheel at the center of the Indian flag. And, and what he tells me is that this is the wheel of Dharma. It is the Ashoka Chakra, the wheel of Dharma. And the way he described it to me, which I will never forget, is that he said, like, that is the wheel of your life. And that wheel, as you grow older, will start to spin faster and faster and faster. You know, years will start to squish together like they didn't before. Each birthday is going to start to feel like it's coming just a little bit sooner than the birthday before it. And time is going to go fast. And his message to me is that oftentimes we can find ourselves as the wheel starts to spin faster and faster, we can find ourselves on the outside of the wheel. And when we're at the outside of the wheel, we're, we are disconnected from who we are because we're simply just trying to keep up with the day-to-days of life. But our job necessarily isn't to prevent ourselves from going to the outside of the wheel because that's inevitably going to happen. Our job, really, this sacred duty of Dharma is to catch ourselves when we are at the outside of the wheel and find our way back to the center. Because again, in the center is this alignment of who you are with what you do. 
for me, I left India, I went back to the United States and I became like an American boy, you know, and, and I completely adopted Western values. I, I went after the things that I thought were going to bring me money and status and, you know, achievement. And, and none of that was bad necessarily. But what I realized is that every time I hit a milestone in my life, the goalpost moved again. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar calls this the arrival fallacy that every time we sort of feel like we're going to reach this moment of arrival that's going to make us happy, that goalpost will tend to move again and again and again. So we're never quite getting to this moment of arrival. And I was feeling that. And I started to kind of come back to my grandfather's porch emotionally and wonder like what this way of Dharma really was and what could this ancient philosophy that has been practiced for thousands of years and it's been handed down generation after generation from ancient to modern, from you know, east to west, what could it teach us today in this frenetic world where things are happening so quickly, so fast, where it seems like every time you finish one thing, you're already late for the next thing? Like, What can we actually learn from Dharma today? That's beautiful. What I loved about your story and about the book is this whole notion of coming back to the center, almost like calling of coming back home, coming back to your breath. Sunil, slow it down, come back to your breath, come back home, come back to your center. Remember your dharma, remember your values. You're out of alignment, so come back. Yeah. And so that whole notion of mindfulness, one definition is to remember, right? Remember to come back to your center. And I I see it as sort of a mantra for you as you now travel forward in life. It very much is. And the thing that I love about what you're saying is that like, it is always possible to begin again. It is always possible to start over. And that might sound obvious, but it wasn't for me. And I don't think it is for a lot of people as well. You know, when I think about how do I sort of keep concentration for a full day, or how do I be a good person even for a full day? The answer is, I don't. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I don't keep concentration for a full day. I lose focus. I'm not a good person all day. I slip up with myself and with others. But it is always possible to begin again and again and again. And I, and I think that that just simple outlook is liberating because I have not yet in all of my research for the past 10 years of meeting, I think some of the most extraordinary people on the planet, have I not heard stories of mistakes and setbacks and regrets of the way that we behaved, the way that we treated other people. But I think it's this liberating notion that we are always able to begin again. That is what sets us free. And, you know, what I hoped to write here in this book is like, no matter where you are in your life, even if you are starting out, I know you have a kid who's right about to graduate from college, right? And about to go on to the next journey of their life. I have kids who are in elementary school and they're about to start theirs. But I also think all the way spanning to people who are our age and older, where they are feeling like they've looked back on a certain life and they feel like maybe it didn't necessarily align with who they are. The beauty of Dharma is that it is never too late to start walking this path. You can always begin again. Yeah, and it's always changing too. Like your Dharma that you may be called to live right now may be different in 20 years. Absolutely. As you hang up, maybe. The professional cleats, your kids are now through college. So there might be a different way to come into alignment, right? So this is like each moment is transient, you know, moments go into other moments and 
we change, we evolve. There's a phrase I love, a person doesn't step into the same river twice <laughs> because the person's always changing and the river's always changing. Oh, I love that. So where you are today, if we come back in 20 years, you could be in a different place. Yeah, you know, for I think many years, I sort of looked at life like a map. You know, I, I sort of charted out the steps that I wanted to take in order to reach what I believe was this red X of happiness, right? The point at the end of the map. And I think the journey that we're on doesn't require a map. What it requires is a compass. And that compass is really kind of tuning into where we are and which direction we want to go in. The nice thing about a compass is that it is allowing you to constantly pull the compass back out and say, hey, here's where I am right now. What is the next best step? What's the next direction I want to go in? And allowing, I think, for some zigging and zagging to occur because, you know, I think the fallacy is that, you know, a fully lived life was a straight linear line. I don't think that that's the case at all. Like I think oftentimes it's these experiences that we look back and say, oh, it didn't neatly stack into sort of all these other experiences. It didn't form a linear line, but it was that experience that taught me way more than I would have had I just simply followed the straight path. And so I think allowing this map to get kind of put aside, pulling out a compass instead, I think that's such an important part of, of how to live your dharma. Yeah, life is not linear, right? So it's twisty, it's up and down, it's it's a little crazy. There's some tilt-a-world moments in it. Yeah. And if you just checked out, say, your LinkedIn profile now, everything on LinkedIn looks linear. It looks like, hey, the dude made it, right? So you started a few businesses, and then you you hit a big with one of them. You were able to get a buyout, if I have that correct. You also had, it was interesting, as I read the book and then I did some prep for our time here today, there's a whole like face of failure thing that pops up when you <laughs> Google you. And I would love for you to share a little bit of your business background and just that life as an innovator, as an entrepreneur, and maybe a touching upon that moment where your name got associated with failure, because I think there's some beauty in that, especially as we get into more of that Kintsugi spirit where we might break apart or crack. And now through living our Dharma, we can find a way to come back together more beautifully. So I'd love for you to share more about that. There was a point in time, no joke, where you could have Googled the word failure. That's it, just the word failure. And there's a good chance that my face would have been one of your top search results. What had happened is I, I had started two companies that had both failed. And I was part of another company that you might be familiar with called Groupon, which was very successful for a short period of time. You know, Forbes magazine called Groupon the fastest growing company of all time. It was one of the darlings in the tech industry. And then a lot of that sort of just kind of came to an end. You know, it was a it was sort of a classic crash and burn type of story, you know, rise and fall type of story. And so that's not a great track record. I started two of my own and then the third, third implodes. So I'm on stage. I got invited to speak at this conference on failure. And I, I kind of almost begrudgingly accepted the invitation, but I felt like it was important to talk about some of this stuff because it's not talked about enough. I'm up on stage, I'm making this speech and I didn't know there was a reporter from the New York Times in the audience. 
So fast forward to this full expose on failure, on people who fail, and literally my photo (laughs) up on stage speaking is the cover of this article. And the story went viral because this was like 2012. And at that time, people weren't talking about failure as much. And today, it's a pretty common topic. But back then, it was kind of a newish idea for an article. And it really, it really got spread around, really got shared a lot to the point where, again, like if you Google the word failure, you would have seen my face as the cover. But, you know, somebody who was really important to me at the time, a close mentor of mine, said that long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. Oh, I like that. If you can learn something from it, if you can do something from it, right? And so what I decided to do is I started to email this article out to all these people that I admired and people who had no idea who I was, but, you know, from Oscar-winning filmmakers to coaches of professional sports teams to leaders of large iconic organizations. They had no idea who I was, but I would, I would literally call email them this article and I would include the link and I'd say, hey, as you can see from this article, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, would you be willing <laughs> to give me some advice? And the response rate to that email was way higher than I would have expected it to be. You know, people people wanted to talk and not only did they want to talk, but because because I had reached out to them through this idea of like, I'm failing, they were very open about their own failures. And what I realized is that a lot of the stories that I was hearing from these conversations were not stories that I was reading online, right? To your point about like looking even at my LinkedIn profile, you don't know that that was the face of failure necessarily. But I was, and it's a big part of my story. And and that was true for these folks as well. So I started to realize that I was kind of sitting almost on this like data set of failure stories that wasn't really in the public domain. And I, I started to write about them. I started to write about what I was learning from them. I think the old adage is is true, which is that success is a lousy teacher. And failure is the opposite. It can be a wonderful teacher. And so I started to write about what I was learning from these stories. And Eventually, those writings turned into articles, and eventually, they turned into books. All right. Let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow, releasing breath out. And relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, Download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans 
rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. I love it. It's like totally owning the break. <laughs> so you can create that wonderful like Kintsugi scar, but like owning it is so, it's so awesome. That was so cool. Because most people would probably fall into a pretty dark hole. Like, oh my God, my content is now going viral in all the ways I don't want it to go <laughs> yeah. viral. Yeah. And <laughs> everywhere you look, you're like, oh yeah, you're the failure guy. So I, of course, need to ask, did you get any advice from folks or what was the advice that people gave you besides them sharing like, hey, listen, uh, me too. I've also had my share of failures. So there's a little bit of, say, empathy or sympathy exchange. But yeah, did you get any advice that's still with you today? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the biggest thing that I, I realized is that we are all, if you look at leaders or how we lead our own lives, we're all idiosyncratic, meaning we all have different styles and personalities. And, and to say that there's one thing, to say that there's one style, I think would be misleading, you know, because we have to figure that out for ourselves. But having said that, I do think that there are patterns. There are things that we can learn from people who have, I think, experienced things, especially the hard way that we can bring into our own lives. And, and I think that, that the central thing, if I had to pick one, would be that if you look at people who fizzle out in their lives or their careers, and you compare them to people who are able to build momentum, you know, they're able to get through the hard times and they're able to continue to thrive and build things over time. The people who fizzle out, very rarely do they run out of time. What they almost always run out of is energy. And I think that that is so important because if you look at the amount of attention that we give to time, you know, there are tools, there are books, the go, go to Amazon and search for time management, you're going to be met with thousands of search results. We have learned how to manage our time, but we don't know necessarily how to manage our energy. And yet energy really is the bridge between where we are and where we want to go. Because if you run out of energy, if you feel too exhausted, you might have the best skills, you might have the best knowledge, you might have the best set of experiences, but you're still not going to be able to get to where you are. It really is the foundation for everything else. And that became really interesting to me as I was doing this research too, because you know I just had my first kid and I was running a startup at the time. You know, My wife and I were living in a shoebox apartment in San Francisco. We were trying to make ends meet. And it's just like, there was no shortage of demands on our energy. And for the first time in my life, I was in my early 30s at the time, for the first time in my life, I was starting to feel really drained, right? And it was this paradox because I was like, I'm smarter than I was before. I know I've learned through battle scars what not to do. And I, have, I know more people. I have all the things on paper that should be making me more successful at what I do. And yet at the same time, I'm starting to feel like I'm running on empty in the tank and I'm starting to feel like I don't have enough fuel. And if I don't have enough fuel, then none of that other stuff really matters. It doesn't make a difference. So I started to get really obsessed with this idea of like, what is it that we can do in order to bring more energy into our lives? In particular, as leaders, like we, I think we have a responsibility 
to the people around us. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily need to be that you're leading a team or managing a team. You're having influence on the people's lives around you. So how do we become more of a proponent, somebody who is able to, I think, help boost other people's energy versus detract people's energy? It might be one of the most important, I think, human responsibilities that we have, particularly in the workforce. Because you know, right now, if you ask the majority of American workers, what is it that drives that are mental health, the single biggest determiner, they're going to tell you it's their work, right? And the single biggest determiner of their work is the people that they're interacting with every single day, particularly their boss. In fact, your boss can have a greater impact on your mental and physical well-being than a doctor or a therapist. That isn't something to be taken lightly. It means that whether we like it or not, this is part of our responsibility set now. Like the way we interact with other people in the workplace it affects their overall well-being, and we need to own that. Absolutely. I think what we hear about this disengagement in corporate life or for entrepreneurs is an energy crisis, as you referenced. And with energy, because I've studied this through like my journey since my accident, we need some fast-burning fuel for those intense moments that we'll come up against. We also need some slow burning fuel to play the long game, right? So that adaptability or versatility with our energy and making sure that as cliche as this sounds, you got to fill up your own cup. You got to fill up your own tank. And we're not necessarily doing a great job at that. And then we're burning matches on some of the stuff that just doesn't matter. And here we are, we're exhausted. And so then we we eat in a different way when we're tired. We consume content in a different way when we're tired. And then we interact. We show up for each other. Like Our ripple changes because ultimately we're just, I like to think we're just a bunch of like flesh and bones and meat and all that stuff. We're really just energy, right? So, and like how we show up matters. Like, you know, when we get to choose what kind of energetic ripple we put into the world. I think that that's so important. And, you know, one of the sort of, I think, I think misperceptions out there is that everything that we're talking about is a Gen Z thing. It's something that is only being owned and talked about for a younger generation. I don't think that's true at all. I spend most of my time with people who are leading organizations and they are as burnt out as people who are entering the workforce for the first time. 40% of C-suite executives, 40% are considering leaving their job over the next year due to workplace stress. And a lot of those people are considering prematurely cutting their career short, you know, meaning that they had, they had a vision for the way that they wanted their career to end. They're thinking about pulling the plug before that ever happens because they can't handle the stress anymore. And so this is, this is something that is not a Gen Z thing, though I think Gen Z is probably being a little more vocal about it. Um, and I think it's probably a good thing. And I think it's a really healthy thing. And I would say, as a Gen Xer and someone who knows a lot of boomers, and you're a Gen Xer, right, Sunil? That you would consider yourself. Are are you are you a Gen Xer or are you a millennial? Uh, You know, it's 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 funny. Sometimes I look it up, and I'm a millennial, and sometimes I'm a Gen Xer. You're on the cusp. I'm on the cusp. So you you can go both ways. But I would I'm going to speak for all Gen Xers and baby boomers now, which should be something I'm shouldn't do, but I'm going to do at risk of criticism. I think we're all jealous of Gen Z's ability to make some calls and if they want to like tap out or switch careers or, 
you know, move to Park City or wherever they move to. And just because I think there's a lot of Gen Xers and baby boomers out there that are in these high level jobs. Because a question I get all the time as a coach, like, so what's common to all the people that you coach, all the people you speak with? And I'm like, we're all going through the same stuff. It's the same worries. It's imposter syndrome. It's anxiety about tomorrow. It's, am I doing a good job? It's the fear of other people's opinions. It's, it's all of that. And I really think a lot of Gen Xers and baby boomers are now stuck and they're like, oh God, I wish I could be a Gen Z. I wish I could do that. <laughs> but I can't because I'm trapped in this lifestyle that I have and I got to figure out a way to get through it because I just can't tap out and, you know, move to Del Boca Vista or wherever. You know, it's too, yeah. it's too early to retire, but I wonder if I have enough gas in the tank to go back to the energy metaphor to make it until I can comfortably retire. And hey, when I retire, I don't necessarily know what my dharma is because I'm surrounded by people who I think are my friends, but truth be told, they're just connections or colleagues at this moment in time. And so that is pretty scary. And I'd say probably more scary for men than women because us guys do not do a great job of building community. Yeah. I think that's been probably the hardest thing for me to learn, which is, you know, when I when I look at people who I think have reached the top of their game, I realize, no, they didn't do it alone. Also, when I say that, I don't mean that they were just surrounded by people who like aided their career. It was people who they could go to and be like really vulnerable with, people they could be honest with. You know, I mean, I, I think that I made the mistake for a while of thinking of sort of friendships and relationships as sort of breath, almost like I want to make as many friends as possible. And what I kind of realized is that I was missing the depth. It's that circle of people where like, you know, I can really get to a place that is human. And um, I value that a lot now. And I feel like in some ways I'm starting over again. And as a result of that, I'm finding you know, myself call people like without a purpose, right? For the first time, like, you know, being on a walk and just calling a friend who I really care about and say like, hey, I was just thinking about you. I never used to do that before. There always had to be a reason for it. There always had to be a purpose for it. But I think what you're pointing out is maybe one of the cornerstones, I think, of Dharma, which is that we don't, it's a Sangha. It's a community of people that ultimately end up having us come back to our center, right? It's the people who will call you out, but have your best interest at heart. It's the people you can bounce ideas off of without feeling like it has to be fully baked. It's the people that you can say like, hey, look, look life's kind of like it's falling off the rails right now, right? Or like, you know, let me give you a really balanced view of what's happening in my life. Because if you don't have those people, it's, I think it's really hard to come back to who you are because you lose objectivity, right? You know, for me, it's like finding those people then once you know, you know, once you start to build a circle, like really investing in that, right? Like really, really like making the phone calls, being quick to call when you think of them versus putting it in your backlog. I, I think that's been game changing for me. I love it. What I hear from you is like maybe through this book, you are starting the path into the second half of life, right? So you're, uh, you're not there yet. You're still a young guy, but you're getting to that point. And so what you shared about Sangha is so important. What I what I call Sangha is who's in your peloton as a cyclist, because I love a good cycling metaphor. 
So a lot of people in the States will think of the spin bike, which is one way to think about it, but a Peloton, you might know, is a group of cyclists in a bike race. So you're riding centimeters from each other. So you need trust, you need openness, you need vulnerability, you need courage. So the whole concept of who are you riding with in life? Are you riding with people who bring out the best in you? And are you bringing out the best in them? And that notion of collaboration and communication and honesty is is really cool, especially as we as we continue to move our careers forward and as we age, just having that community of people that you know, like if you get a flat tire, there's someone there to help you. You know, it just there's a comfort there and there's a yeah, there's a safety that I think we all thirst for along with belonging. Yeah, you know, years ago I went to the kingdom of Bhutan. And Bhutan is a fascinating country because for the past 50 years, they have been measuring themselves based on what they call gross national happiness. And so they care about GDP, they care about economic growth, but it all rolls up into this higher level metric, which is like, how happy are our people? And it's the only country in the world that measures itself this way. It's an experiment, as, as are a lot of different countries right now, like trying to figure it out. They don't always get things right. But they certainly have have like come to some very interesting outcomes. Like Bhutan is the only country in the world that produces more oxygen than it consumes. It's carbon negative. And they have deliberately made decisions not to chop down trees, not to spoil things like clean rivers, because they believe like the quality of their air is very, very important. The quality of the water is very, very important to the happiness of their people. But the reason I bring it up is because when I was on, you know, on this sort of like expedition, I was doing a bunch of research and and I had a chance to spend time with the team that has been put in charge of really kind of calculating this metric of gross national happiness. They they go out and and they're scouring sort of the, the country and they're talking to people and they're putting together numbers. And they have teams from Oxford and Harvard join them and they have been for decades. And I asked him, I said, hey, is there a single question that you can ask when you're out talking to people that can give you a pretty good indicator of their happiness? And they said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. And the question is, if you needed help right now, who could you call and know with 100% certainty that person would be there for you? And they believe that people who have an answer to that question, they can answer that immediately. They have a much higher likelihood of being happy. But there was a twist. And the twist is, who can call you? Who can call you and know with 100% certainty that you will be there for them? And they have that knowledge. They feel that way. People who can answer that question have an even higher likelihood of being happy. So it's not a line, it's a, it's a circle, right? It's a relationship. And I, and I think that that to me was really, really eye-opening, right? Is this idea of like, there are people in my life who can call me and I will jump on a plane and I will be there for them. But I'm not quite sure. I remember coming back from Bhutan thinking to myself, I'm not quite sure if they know that, right? Like my family probably does, my immediate family probably does. But I have friends, I have people who I went to college with and I haven't spoken to in years. But if they called me, I would, on a no conditions, like I would, I would get on a plane, I'd be there for them. But they didn't know that. And so I went on this kind of like mini kind of mission to like make them aware of that. I sent emails, I made phone calls and I, and I just said, hey, like, I just want you to know. And usually these phone calls are pretty awkward, you know, like it's a, it's a strange one to receive. But I do think that it, it had a lot of meaning, you know, it, had, it certainly had a lot of meaning for me. It's so generous, Sunil. Like, I know it probably sounds awkward for people listening to what you just did. And it was awkward for you based on what you just shared. But once you hang up, 
there is a warm, fuzzy feeling inside the other person to know, oh, wow, okay, I'm not alone. And coming back to this whole notion of wheel and the Dharma wheel, like the circle, right? So in a circle, circles are amazing because there's great strength in a circle. There's no hierarchy in a circle. And one of the beautiful things about a circle is that all eyes can see all eyes. Like we see each other. And in today's disconnected world, again, I think we just want to be seen. And uh, we want to be seen for all of our beauty that includes all of our blemishes and scars and all that jazz, which gives us a nice launching off pad to talk about Kintsugi. I remember we had an exchange, I think, on LinkedIn, I was reading your book and then I reached out to come on. And you're like, oh, there's a section in the book about Kintsugi. And I hadn't reached that point in the book yet. And I was like, no way, wait a second. So I fast forwarded to that section and then I came back and then finished the book. <laughs> but I love for you to share about your take on Kintsugi and how it fits into everyday Dharma. Yeah. So we'll start with what I think, you know, most people who listen to this podcast know, which is like the story of Kintsugi. But for me, I, I was sort of discovering it for the first time. And I found it so fascinating, you know, this 15th century shogun who drops his favorite bowl and smashes into pieces and he's devastated. And so he hires somebody to fix it. And when it comes back fixed, what he finds is that it's been stapled back together. And he's like, this is this is not what I had in mind. Like it doesn't, it doesn't look or feel, it doesn't have the qualities of the bowl that I loved. And so he brings in this artist to figure out what to do with it. And what this artist does instead is instead of stapling it, removes the pieces again and puts this beautiful golden lacquer in between the pieces. And so when the Shogun receives it back, it's the bowl but it looks different than it did before. It's not trying to hide the cracks, but it's illustrating the cracks. It's it's actually highlighting the cracks. Um, and as you know, like this bowl becomes again his cherished possession because it has the same sort of quality. It has the same energy of the bowl that he used to love. Right? It was something that had power. There was power to it, and there was beauty to it. And Kintsugi, like, you know, ended up evolving from this art form into this philosophy of celebrating the brokenness of, you know, the beauty that comes with, with broken things. And the reason that it ties to Dharma is because I, there's a chapter in this book around the concept of Tula. And Tula is basically the balance between being able to take charge and let go. And no one side is better than the other. I think there is a certain amount of taking charge in your life that is important. And there's a certain amount of letting go that is important as well. Kintsugi, in a lot of ways, sort of brings these two things together, right? You, you are putting effort into bringing the pieces back together, but you're not denying what has happened. You're not denying, most importantly, the lessons that have come along with it. That's the tie to sort of the Eastern side of things. The tie to the Western side of things, which... I, you know, I really made it a point for any of the principles in this book, they had to find an echo in the Western halls of science, right? Like, what is it that we can bring into our day-to-day -day life? What is it that's science-based? And if you look at sort of, I think, one of the echoes of Kintsugi in today's halls of science is really around this idea of post-traumatic growth, right? Which is different than resilience. As you well know, Michael, you talk about this, which is like, 
the resilience can sometimes feel like this act of like, if you fall down, you get back up, you fall down, you get back up. And it's really about, you know, not how many times you fall, but how many times you rise, which there's a lot of power and I think importance to that. But what sometimes gets dismissed is what we learn along the way. And sometimes the act of getting up can cover up the sort of learning, the growth that we can get to. And we can sometimes get up too fast or dust ourselves off a little bit too fast without acknowledging and I think leaning into the parts of us that can grow. So that's really the tie between Kintsugi. And I try to bring in some stories. In fact, one of the stories that got cut from the book because it was feeling a little bit too long, but I I was almost like very hesitant to cut is that like, When I first went from college into the workforce, one of my first jobs was in IT consulting. And it was never a job that I enjoyed, but it was at a prestigious firm. My parents were happy about it. I was making decent money, but my heart wasn't in it. And not only was that visible to me, but apparently it was visible to everybody else around me because in my sort of class, there's a batch of people who join at the same time out of the Detroit office where I had started, there were eight of us who had started. We all came up for promotion at the same time. And I was the only one who did not get promoted. The only one. And I remember that night, I was like 23 years old, right? And to me, like life was over. Like it was done. I remember all the people went out to celebrate. And, you know, I kind of showed up just to like say congratulations to everybody. But I was like, I was completely brokenhearted. But I remember waking up the next morning and I went to the office. I got up earlier than everybody else. I got to the office first because everybody was, everybody was probably hung over from partying the night before. I was like pretty fresh. And I went to the office and I pulled out a piece of paper and I wrote at the top of the piece of paper, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Because I knew like this wasn't it. If anything was going to shatter the bowl, it was what just happened to me the day before. Now it was up to me to put the pieces back together. But if I just simply sort of like got up and said like, I'm going to make partner before everybody else, or I'm going to like get past them, I'm going to do that. I would be missing, I think, a lot of the information and I think growth and learning that was coming my way that like, I think the universe was trying to teach me, which is like, listen, you're not actually in the right place right now. This is actually not the best fit for you. And you know that, right? Like this is not you not trying hard enough. Your heart is not here. And so take this learning, don't get up too fast, spend some time reflecting on it. And had I not done that, I don't think I'd be on the path that I'm on today. Like, honestly, if I got promoted alongside everybody else, I might still be working as an IT consultant today. And I can't imagine my life that way, but I think there's a good chance like I would have just continued to sort of ride this tide. Instead, I kind of tuned into what it was. I let the pieces be broken. And, you know, that's why you and I are having a conversation today, Michael. Yeah, I I thank the universe or whomever or your principals at your consulting firm for not promoting you because if they had, we would not be connected today, right? So it's that's a really cool way of looking at it. And I appreciate what you said about resilience. You know, there is an old saying, fall down seven, get back up eight. And when I started this podcast, it was called the Kintsugi Podcast, Conversations About Resilience. And when I brought it back, I changed it to stories about connection because what I thought was missing was the learning. Because if you're falling down seven times, you might want to pause, breathe, reflect my language. 
on why you're falling down so much. There's some lessons in there that might help guide you as you go forward. And connection was key. So it's connecting back to your language, your dharma, and the lessons of all this, and who you are, and what fires you up, and what feels to be in alignment. I love that you just shared that. And I also love that you shared something that was edited out of the book, because I always love to ask that, because the book comes out, and there's it's usually filled with a whole bunch of goodness, but there's always there's always something that gets you know cut. And I always love to ask authors like, okay, what was cut that you wish maybe it wasn't cut, right? So it just I, I love the fact that you automatically added that. So uh, I'm going to get you out on a few last questions. So one is a practical one. So people read your book, they've heard you speak, they've listened to this conversation, they're like, all right, I'm bought in, I have awareness. I think I need to live differently. I need to approach my relationship with work and maybe the people around me differently. But Sunil, I'm on this, I'm on this hamster wheel. Everything around me says, keep going on this thing. Like, I don't know how to get off. So how does one begin? What are a few easy steps? Because I'm a big take micro steps. What recommendations would you have to begin if someone is hearing us and says, I'm in, I just don't know how to start. Yeah, I love easy steps as well. It's the only way I really know how to make change. And that's why this book is really kind of, it's split up into 30 or more rituals, like 30 plus rituals, things that you can put into practice. And you can almost think of this as a menu of options, right? So you try out different things and you figure out what's going to work for you. One of my favorite rituals in the book is really this reflection on the bright spots of your day, of your week. And what I mean by that, it may sound simple, but you know, oftentimes I get the question, all right, I don't know what my dharma is, right? It's one thing to live your dharma, but it's another thing to like know what your dharma is. And I think, you know, we can be of any age and still not know what our dharma is. And the good news is that you don't necessarily need to go searching for your dharma it's already inside of you. And it always has been like, there's a glimmer of it. It may have been something that you were connected to when you were a kid. It may be something that you experienced last week. But one of the ways we can get more in touch with that place is by identifying sort of these energetic moments throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout our month, when we get that little boost, you know, that feeling. And while that might sound obvious, the reason that it's not is because we have a tendency to dismiss those moments. We spend a lot of time looking at the things that, you know, bring us despair, but we end up looking through the moments that end up bringing us joy, bring us energy. And that's just human nature for most of us, right? I mean, neuroscientists would call this hedonic adaptation. We dismiss the positive, we dwell on the negative. The problem with that is that oftentimes those bright spots can be really, really important windows into your dharma. They can be really important windows into the things that you really make you come alive and they'll align you between who you are with what you do. And so as we can start to, I think, bring more deliberate attention to these bright spots in our day, we start to kind of understand a little bit more of who we are. We can start to multiply these bright spots as well. There's a nurse in the book that I talk about. Her name is Karen Strzok, and she was a chief nurse inside a hospital, inside an ER, 
but she wasn't really satisfied with her job. What she realized, though, is that there was a moment each day when she was really getting this energetic boost. And that was when she was filling out patient paperwork, which like nobody enjoyed. But for some reason, she did. And the reason that she enjoyed it is because she wasn't just filling out the clinical details of a patient. She was talking about who they were, what they loved to do, you know, who was at home waiting for them when they got home each day. And she enjoyed writing these stories. And these like pretty basic forms would get passed around the hospital, almost like these mini novels, because she put her heart into each one of them. She enjoyed the work. And so what she realized is like, I want to be doing more of that. So as a side hustle or a hobby, she started to write. She started to use her train rides to and from work to just start writing a little bit more. And eventually those pages, and this is not like a flip of a switch, but over years, these pages, which she really loved enjoying, they started to get shared around to the point where it became like a movie. And eventually it became like TV shows. And she became one of the leading sort of, you know, medical writers in Hollywood. And by the way, she did that in her 50s. Like she didn't get her first break until she was in her late 40s. So this is the kind of thing that happened over time. But Michael, honestly, if none of the Hollywood stuff ever happened, this would be a Dharma story. Because when I talked to her, when I spent time with her and interviewed her, she was like, my energy, the way that I felt about myself the way that I interacted with my family, the way that I interacted with my patients, when I was writing each day, when I was spending more time aware of what those bright spots were and investing a little bit more time, just even a little bit, a few minutes more each day into that thing, I felt like I was no longer in betrayal of myself. I felt like I was taking the sacred duty and I was in some ways expressing it to the world, even if that way was through a nurse, which didn't have any job description overlap with that of writer. I love that you underscored that aspect of it because you can quite easily take the Hollywood part of it and be enamored with the shiny object of like, oh, wow, the big stage, the status, the influence. So I really appreciate how you came back to just who she was at her core and her dharma and what lit her up and taking something that most people dread, admin, and how she turned it into something so special for her and brought her own energy to it. So I so appreciate that story. So we're going to end here. I'm not sure if you know the show Inside the Actor's Studio, which used to air years ago. Of course, James Lipton. So I'm going to paraphrase a question that James Lipton would ask at the end. So let's assume there's an afterlife. And in the afterlife, you get to meet your elders when you come into the afterlife. What would you want them to say to you when you see them again? Wow. Oh my gosh. So much of this book is about those elders. And I think, you know, I, I, kind of, I kind of imagine my grandfather, who I start this book talking about, saying, you know, I read the book. I saw the book. And, you know, I'm proud of it. You know, I'm proud of the stories that were told. I think that that could be like, I can't imagine a finer compliment than that. That's a good way of ending. I love that. So Neil, thanks for joining. Thank you for putting a beautiful ripple into the world and role modeling our Kintsugi energy. So I appreciate you. Thank you, Michael. I I love the podcast. I love what you do. And I'm so glad those people came to you during your bike tour to say, please bring it back. Yeah, they were good people to do so. I am very grateful for them. There's something about Sunil's energy that I just love. You feel a sense of calm in his presence. 
and I hope you enjoyed his story. As you may know, we like to drop in for a short meditation here on the Kintsugi Podcast. It's just two minutes. It's a way to reflect back and honor what our guest has shared with us. This week's practice will be about coming back to center, coming back to your breath. So if you're ready, settle into a comfortable posture. You may wish to close your eyes or you can keep them open if that feels safer. And we'll drop in. We'll begin with a few generous inhales. Breathing up fully through your nose if you can. And slow releasing exhales. Allowing yourself to come into this moment. And offering Sunil your gratitude for him sharing his story of connection. And when it feels right, you may wish to settle into the natural rhythm of the breath. And as you're breathing in, notice that you're breathing in. And as you're breathing out, notice that you're breathing out. In any time, your mind wanders away. Just know that you're human and come back to the breath. Come back to the center and simply begin again. Begin with this breath. And this breath. And this breath. All right, nice job. You can begin to ease your attention and open your eyes and wiggle those beautiful fingers and toes. I would like to thank Sunil again for sharing his story of connection with us. Sunil, thank you for rippling something worth rippling into the world. And know this, you did not travel alone. We love you. <laughs>